Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is episode number six, and today we are joined by another special guest, and whom I will uh, allow. My, oh, I'm getting tangled in my syntax. Maggie's going to introduce her. That's the point. Uh, so well, I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Maggie Park, uh, my co-host, who's going to introduce our guest. I thank you for that. Syntax is a dangerous thing to get wrapped up <laughs> sure in. Sure is. <laughs> like I, I found myself in a dark alley there, syntactically speaking, and just couldn't find my way out. <laughs> but um, we are joined today by Robin Ann Reed, um, who I'm sure most of you are familiar with. And if not, then you are in for a treat. Um, so Robin is a retired professor of the Department of Literature and Languages at Texas A&M. She retired just recently in May of 2020. I think that was excellent timing. Um, she is enjoying retirement as an independent scholar while serving in uh, this area of Tolkien studies um, for the Popular Culture Association. And she's, of course, working on multiple projects. So I'm going to read through some of those just to get us excited about what she's kind of putting her brain into. Um, current projects in progress include a reception study of atheist, agnostic, and animist readers of Tolkien's Legendarium, an anthology co-edited co with Christopher Vaccaro and Stephen Yandel titled We Could Do With a Bit More Queerness in These Parts, Tolkien's Queer Legendarium, a second anthology, Race, Racisms, and Racists, Essays on Tolkien's Legendarium, Adaptations, and Readers. Um, this is under contract at McFarland and an essay about her love and cornerstones for Joanna Russ and Tolkien. There's so much about that that excites me. So I'm really glad that you are here, Robin. Um, and as I as I introduced uh, Corey, Robin, to our style, I was like, we don't really have a structure, but <laughs> that's right. <laughs> if you give us a little bit of background about what you're into and some of the things that have gotten us thinking and talking, especially with the Amazon series coming up, but I'm going to turn it over to you, but welcome. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you so much uh, for having me. Uh, just a, a minor correction, and it's, it's understandable. I'm actually was at Texas A&M University hyphen commerce. I don't want to claim I was at the flagship. I was at one of the <laughs> system schools. My apologies. <laughs> no, it, it makes sense. The look at university names. Um, and in fact, um, my sort of lack of structure is indicated in the list of things like, oh, shiny, oh, I want to do this, oh, I'll do this. But there has been a, a sort of strain uh, running through my work that has increased in, in recent years, which um, I'm actually currently behind, but working on a presentation for the Pop Culture Studies Conference. I head up the Tolkien area, so it, it's a bunch of um, uh, work on Tolkien, and we have uh, panels on race and religion this year, and they're very much connected with these debates that are going on uh, in the fandom and in academia. I'm actually looking at the alt-right backlash against the Tolkien Society's seminar on diversity last summer mm -hmm. that I participated in. Uh, one of the odd things that happened in that is that the Tolkien Society was assumed to be the Tolkien estate, was assumed to be at fault for Amazon Prime's ruining Tolkien. It was a very bizarre set of associations mm -hmm. that some people were making. Uh, and my overall argument is that this backlash against this, for academic conferences, fairly small conference, is tied to the larger culture wars in the, in the US, uh, which I've been personally observing since the 80s when George Will was accusing the Modern Language Association of being Marxists. 
and um, Western civilization was going to fall because of uh, someone might teach Alice Walker instead of Shakespeare. Corey's nodding. He probably remembers some of that, too. <laughs> yes. yes, I do. Yes, yes. Yes. Uh, but of course, in recent years in the 21st century and since Trump was elected, um, we've had more iterations. Uh, I've seen major racial debates in fandom, Race Fail 09, where actually Tolkien was weaponized because fans of color were being called orcs for questioning representations of blackness in science fiction and fantasy. And then, of course, the larger stage, we had the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, where the extent to which their appropriation of medieval imagery and their rhetoric that the Middle Ages was pure and white and there were no people of color in the Middle Ages in Europe mm -hmm. uh, is very much connected to comments that are being made about the Amazon Prime series, which yes. has uh, a more diverse casting. Uh, we've had um, um, recent scholarship, uh, Dimitri Fimi, Helen Young, and others working on the extent to which there is a white supremacist, neo-Nazi um, fandom uh, for Tolkien. And it's, it's not only for Tolkien. There's a neo-Nazi fandom in the My Little Pony fandom. So the popular culture, uh, off, I, I know, but <laughs> I can give you a bibliography. Uh, no, you're in the right crowd. <laughs> yeah. Tolkien, Tolkien's work has attracted uh, these fans. and. One of my concerns, and this is the, the race, racisms and racists anthology, is that too many people in, of, among Tolkien academics are, are sort of dismissing, well, there's, you know, important scholarship on good and evil in Tolkien. And then there's the laundry list, which is what Mike Drought called it in one of his essays of race, sex and class. The identity politics are unimportant part of Tolkien studies. But of course, the extent to which you know medieval studies and Anglo-Saxon studies had their roots in the 19th century academia, where there was a very strong sense of racial hierarchy with the Anglo-Saxons being the most superior whites compared to the Eastern European whites and the Mediterranean whites. There's a whole history. Um, if you start looking at political theory about racisms and, and racial hierarchies, Going back to the Middle Ages, that there were concepts of race in the Middle Ages, and the medievalists are, especially medievalists of color, um, uh, Hang and, and some others are looking at these issues. So for me, it's very timely in, in response to that, which explains why the other day I found myself going through the nearly 5,000 comments on the Super Poll teaser video and making copies to uh, study the rhetoric of it. So. That's how I got here. <laughs> and it is very timely. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit. You, you, you were talking uh, in an article that you uh, published not too long ago um, about kind of two different approaches to discussing race in Tolkien. And I think this kind of uh, spelling out these two different concepts, because one of the things one of the impressions that I've certainly gotten, and this is a comment that was also made uh, by one of our uh, students and community members, well, alumni and community uh, members, Alyssa House Thomas, who was uh, who was saying that you know one of one of the things that she keeps seeing, and I, and I you know once she 
was pointing it out, I'm definitely, I definitely agree that I'm seeing it too, is that one of the, one of the problems that you have in the, you know, kind of conflicts that are happening is you have people really speaking at cross purposes, right? When they're, uh, it's, it's fairly clear that they're, some of their core definitions are quite different, right? And so they think they're debating about a thing when they're actually not really communicating at all. Um, uh, and I think that your your concept of these two different ideas of race may really kind of help to, to to illustrate that. Could you could you talk about those two approaches a little bit? Sure. Yeah. This this comes out of the the kind of work and, and stuff I did, especially with that bibliographic essay where I was looking surveying the whole race and token studies. If you define and I but I saw this as early as um, race fail '09 in the fan debates. If you mm -hmm. define race as individual hatred. Uh, and bad feelings based on skin color shown in behavior. That is one of the definitions and until recently was sort of the dictionary definition of race, although the dictionaries are starting to change. However, in the past 30 or so years, sociology has developed a different definition of race. And this is tied in, but not equivalent to critical race theory but it's which of course is one of the big bugaboos uh, going on these days, which is that there are, it's called unconscious or aversive racism. It is how systems operate without any conscious intent on the part of people as part of those systems to, to result in racial inequality. And if you have people who have been taught this definition and ways of looking at it, think of, you know, the way certain neighborhoods were redlined and cut off and covenants were set up so that uh, black people could not buy houses in them. Some of those covenants and redlining still exists today and people may not even realize it, but they are part of this system. And there have been, I mean, uh, the sociologists have done some recent studies where they set out two exact same resumes, one with a name like oh, Michael and the other with a name like Ibrahim and got completely different results. So they're saying without people saying, oh, I'm racist, they just, it, it triggers unconscious associations and ideas. The idea is these historical systems and Demetra's book is fantastic because it goes back to the eugenics science of the 19th century. Uh, have had an effect on today's society. Uh, so, for example, one of my favorite sociologists, Eduardo Bonilla Silva's work, he distinguishes between Jim Crow racism, which is an overt type of racism resulting in uh, violent behavior based on the idea of genetic inferiority com compared to what he calls unconscious racism or racism without racists, which is uh, it's, it's sometimes encoded so deeply in the systems, it's not in the open laws. You don't necessarily see uh, overt behavior like lynchings, and but you have the rhetoric that, oh, um, because the cultures from which people of color come are so uh, dysfunctional, that's why they have problems in schools and getting jobs. It's not they're inferior, it's just they're different cultures, but that, leads to the same sort of effects. Mm -hmm. So it becomes very complicated. And yes, if, if someone is coming in and asking the question, is Tolkien racist? If you're based on the, the first definition, well, no, 
because look at that letter he wrote to his German publisher and look at what he spoke out about apartheid and, and all of this. And then if you come with the second definition, you're saying, yeah, it gets complicated because look at the orcs, look at uh, the Southrons, look at the Haradrim and you know, sort of saying, well, those are the Mongols. It still leads to, to patterns of racism. So yes, you have both in fandom and online all over the place and in academia, people working from completely different definitions, uh, which is why, as I always used to tell my students, and I imagine you do as well too, you have to define your terms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that seems to be so much the issue with so much of this. Everybody's coming at this with their own definitions that are mm -hmm. so informed. And that's why I appreciated your bibliography of just, here's where some of these things came from. Here's some of the references that mm -hmm. help them form these opinions. Because there's so much nuance to understanding any kind of sociological topic. And if you're not willing to engage in that, then you're not doing the work. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing. There's so many people not engaging with the terminology, the, the, the nuance of it, that they're just getting mad, which makes it hard to have a conversation. And um, that's why I look at this whole long history of the culture war. I mean, the massive amounts of research on the increasing polarization in the US. And I'm not saying this doesn't happen in other countries. I just don't know enough to speak to it. But I'm looking at the UK, I'm going, yeah, some similar things going on there as well. Uh, and the individualized bubbles of media we all inhabit and, and all of this. Yeah, people and everything else is going on, COVID, and climate change and everything else. Yeah, people are mad and they're really, really lashing out. Um, another pattern that leads in the scholarship is uh, interdisciplinary issues about what literary studies is. Mm -hmm. And for some people, it's close textual reading, close textual analysis, not considering the cultural context in any great detail, except oh, to say, well, he was talking fought in World War uh, One, therefore this, but not really right. looking, for example, at how different attitudes about race existed at during Tolkien's life. Again, that's where Demetra's book comes in so handy because she traces that intellectual history. Um, so if you're looking at just the text or the text of letters versus what in um, some of the current disciplines is called circumstances of production and reception, you know, how it was produced, how it was received, what people thought about it, where you actually also study the reception. And that's a fancy way for talking about what I'm doing in my current presentation, which is copying and pasting a whole lot of um, stuff from online articles and comment forums, putting it into a corpus, it's a corpus linguistics is the methodology, and then looking at the key words and patterns in the rhetoric mm -hmm. to say that, you know, not just looking at an individual essay or text and saying so-and-so said this, looking at, look, if you have all of these people who are against the concept of diversity, what are they saying? I mean, what language are they using? And of course, the, the word that comes up over and over again now, and I'm sure you've seen it, is woke. Mm. Right. which has replaced social justice warrior, which replaced politically correct, if you trace mm -hmm. these back. So, so what would you say to someone who is basically, you know, who, who basically is arguing that whiteness, especially like white race is really essential 
to Tolkien. Like, and so here, of course, I'm thinking especially about reaction uh, against, you know, what Amazon is doing. Um, you know, the idea of a dark-skinned elf uh, and all that kind of thing. Um, and the, 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 the feeling that a lot of people have, and I'm, you know, I'm not talking about, um, I'm not even addressing things like, you know, like a neo-Nazi element or something. I mm -hmm. don't doubt that that exists, but it's not my chief concern. Like I, you know, based on my interactions with people, the the very clear impression I get is that there's this large body of fans who are not, you know, themselves neo-Nazis, right? But who do think that there's something core to Tolkien's world that's being discarded, that's being violated here. Um, what do you... What would you say to that? How do you think that that kind of, you know, sort of fits? What do the like ideas of Tolkien and race ha sort of have to say to that kind of thing? Well, I, I will admit that in a lot of the the online discussions, I only sort of do so much work because online discussions are are fraught for all sorts of reasons. Uh, but I think you're you're right in that the, the the and in fact, I'm seeing this on the Amazon Prime. Uh, mm -hmm. video comment thread, a whole lot of Tolkien fans who say they're not racist. Mm -hmm. And I will accept that they are not Jim Crow racist. Right. Um, as a white person who was brought up, I, I have a strong feeling that many of us white people have in the U.S. have certain images and, and concepts in mind mm -hmm. uh, that, that work. So um, they are simply upset, yes, because they think of Tolkien as a certain way. Um, I would, and, and I've seen this played out in various, various places. One thing to point out is that, I mean, the hobbits are, are often perceived by many as the ultimate heroes of the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet Tolkien's own descriptions of the hobbits have some of them fairer skinned than others. And so Sam's, Sam's brown, brown hand skin, and so, yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah, that gets that, debated. Oh, he's a gardener. He's out in the sun. He's really white. Um, so that would be there. There is also the, the spiritual hierarchy of, uh, closeness for the elves closest to the light and whiteness and light and levels of power and the wood elves being lowered down. Apparently, and you have to get really deep into Silmarillion to know this, apparently red hair is a marker of a superior type of elf. Um, in terms of some of the characters who had red hair, and which explains why certain people were so upset that Toriel in the Hobbit Jackson film had kind of reddish hair. I didn't know this, so it was interesting when I started, because I, I did a project on Toriel to learn this. So there are spiritual, cultural, and some can argue racial hierarchies in Tolkien. Mm -hmm. So is whiteness uh, the, the most important element of Tolkien, one, one question I'd ask people is when you're saying whiteness, are you saying, and this is why many people get so mad at me, are you saying a capital W whiteness or a small w whiteness? Are you using whiteness as just a sort of descri neutral description of those of us who have sort of peachy, pinky, paley skin? Or are you using it as whiteness, Western civilization, superiority? Mm-hmm. I would argue against capital W whiteness being the most important thing in Tolkien. 
but this is where the reception theory comes on. I know that, and I know this especially from teaching Tolkien and, and other works over the years, all, every reader interprets a text in the light of their own context, their own experiences, their own beliefs, their own ideology. I had students in Texas who were convinced that yes, the dwarves were based on Jews and thus were irredeemably evil because of their religious background. And it, I learned during that time, it was not possible to change their minds. So this, this sort of discussion, it is very possible for people to change their ideas about a text, but arguing against that and saying, you're wrong, this is really what you know, it means, I think is a very sort of ineffective way to go about it. I don't right. know if that's helping or any way. Uh, it just means that trying to find out why people are so tied to that idea of whiteness, mm -hmm. I think is important. Yeah, I mean, that. so as far as within the, 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 the argument that I keep hearing, um, mm -hmm. as far as like the, you know, their own reading of Tolkien is concerned, is I hear people again and again connecting it to the mythology for England idea, right? That this is the essential part of Tolkien, you know, Tolkien's, like the heart of Tolkien's, you know, mythopoeic undertaking, right? Is like to write this mythology for England. Uh, and that means like his people, which means white people. And so like that, and so to take that, you know, so that this is where then the comparisons come in. Like it, it's, it, you know, uh, casting, uh, uh, you know, a dark skinned person in Tolkien is would be like casting a white person as Black Panther. And, and you know, that's kind of the comparison, right? That uh -huh. that comes in. Um, so it, it's that it's that link to the mythology of England. And it's really hard because, of course, I mostly encounter these things on Twitter. And I'm just like, I, 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 I can't like, I, you know, I, I feel so many times like, um, I, I, you know, like like how Sam feels uh, when you know Rosie says, "Why, why do you want to go leave, Mr. Frodo?" You know, uh, if you've been, you know, <laughs> just when things start getting dangerous, and Sam thinks it would take a week's answer or none, and oh, so no. he just leaves, right? And I, I, that's how uh, very often I feel when this comes up, and I'm like. That it's so much more complicated than that. But I mean, I would love to hear what, I mean, I, I assume this, you know, this whole, like the link between, uh, you know, white whiteness in, in one sense or other, you know, whether you're, uh, uh, you know, however one is using whiteness. And even like, and I don't think it's necessarily in a, like a, again, in a, a sort of cultural supremacy context, it's just like, you know, again, culture. Tolkien was white. He taught, he speaks very affectionately about, you know, his country, about England. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And his people. Right. And so therefore. Um, and so, I mean, one like little gesture that I made once, you know, on Twitter to try to talk about this was I'm like, it's it's, um, uh, you know, I, people started people started responding to that person and saying like, well, but there's like England contains more than just white people. And then he's like, why are you guys making this about nationality? And I'm like, because Tolkien says England, he doesn't say like my family anyway. But, um, but, but uh, I don't know. I just, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about the whole mythology for England angle uh, there as it's connected to race. Uh, well, first I almost want to connect to, did you see Luke Shelton's brilliant, um, blog post about how the actual phrase mythology for England is Humphrey Carpenter mm -hmm. paraphrasing the letter, I think, right. to Milton Waldman, 
Right, right. And what you say, Corey, is true for all of this. It's always more complicated with Zoom. It's always more complicated, yeah. Stop simplifying it. Um, but yes, uh, Luke wrote that in response to the fact that a huge percent of the comments on the Amazon Prime YouTube trailer were that quote, all attributed to Tolkien. Right. And Tolkien never said that. And if you look at the entire quote, he, he says, yes, when I was young, I had this great idea, blah, 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 blah. I have grown wiser or something right. like that at the end. That is he. And, and he was not talking about the Lord of the Rings. He was talking about the material that became the Silmarillion yes. and a book of the Lost Road and the, all of that material that he never could bring together in a way and actually get published. So he really, whatever he, and whatever he meant by that is iffy. This gets complicated because people often think mythology is this, you know, a good thing. Right. But of course, as Tolkien himself pointed out in his letters, the mythologies of uh, Germanic and, and Northern Europe that he so loved was corrupted by Hitler and the Nazis and used as an excuse for genocide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's that's something I often quote to people when they get off onto this. It's, it's like, yes, uh, Tolkien knew that mythology or calling something a myth could be used for political military purposes. Yes. And, and he condemned that. So if you were using I'm his... See, especially, I'm thinking about his letters to Christopher in World War II, right? Mm -hmm. How uncomfortable he was with any kind of blanket nationalism. I mean, you know, his his whole, like, there are orcs on both sides and his, like, the, the things that he says about the Air Force, right? And, yep. like, how uncomfortable he is with... I mean, he is... Um, definitely not just like English nationalist all the way across, right? He's super uncomfortable with what the government is doing and with the war effort. And even though he doesn't oppose the war, like he's, he's, you know, uh, you know, he was himself volunteering as he could and his sons were in the war. It's not like he's, uh, he was, uh, you know, anti the ally side in World War II. And yet he was deeply uncomfortable with what England was doing and what uh, and, 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 and what the country was doing and very critical uh, of its leadership often and, and concerned about things like uh, uh, like empire and stuff. So anyway, I, yeah, yeah, it's certainly yeah. not just a, a pure uh, unthinking nationalism no. thing. And his some of the work in the some of the stories in the Silmarillion, <clears throat> um, especially the fall of Numenor. I mean, Numenor's corruption was when they shifted from trying to, you know, basically help others in Middle Earth to colonizing them and ruling them and setting up an empire and uh, uh, putting themselves on this higher level. So, yeah. And one of the, the things I've often assigned in my, my classes for, well, since since it came out and before I stopped teaching, uh, Berlin Flieger's great essay in um, Myth Lore, The Arch and the Keystone, where she looks at all the contradictory responses to Tolkien. She doesn't talk about specific reception. She just talks about how people see him as, you know, a racist, as anti-racist. I mean, she just lines them up. It's brilliant. And says all of those contradictory readings come from the fact that Tolkien's work. And see, that's another issue I, I, I point out to my, my scholarship. When you're saying Tolkien is X or Y, are you talking about Tolkien, the human being? Or are you using Tolkien as a synecdoche, a, a stand-in for Tolkien's work? Yeah. Right. 
we have to talk about Tolkien's work. Right. We do not. We don't have, have any authority to talk about him as a human being. Right. Right. And the letters were edited, plus, and everything is edited. But um, the reason that there's so much contradictory among the fandom and among academics is that he himself in his work showed these massive contradictions around religion around power around race i mean there's never i mean in the 50s when lord of the rings first came out critics dismissed it as a simplistic morality tale of good and evil right. i would say one thing that tolkien scholarship has done in the past 70 years to show it's a lot more complicated mm. right and there's right. no point where you can say okay everybody's just purely good Right. Um, right, including the elves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Robin, I've said before, one of my favorite, uh, I, I love the review that C.S. Lewis wrote when The Two Towers came out, where mm -hmm. he says like, well, at least now that the second volume is out, I'm sure we can finally put to bed forever the ridiculous <laughs> critique that people have been making that all the kids' characters are all black and white. And I was just like, ah, <laughs> Louis, you sweet summer <laughs> child. <laughs> if only. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and in fact, that Peter Jackson's when Two Towers movie came out in the wake of 9-11, and immediately people seized on the Two Towers and read it as the Twin Towers and read um, the uh, nice white Rohirrim as the poor innocent Americans. And, you know, so um, again, as Berlin... So I was quote, uh, readers have been seeing what they see and making the meaning in Tolkien as they will, and they're not going to stop. Uh, right. So it does become a good challenge of how do we create spaces uh, to talk about this. Uh, I have a, a number of friends uh, who, in fact, when they tried to talk about race in some of the Tolkien Facebook groups, which are very, very large, uh, were basically driven out. In fact, there are some groups who, who, who have rules that you cannot talk about race, you cannot talk about sexuality or, or gender identity, you cannot talk about any of these political issues because you just as if that wasn't in itself a political issue. Right. So, it is all reflecting what the, the larger discussions that are that are going on. Yeah. But yeah. I'm, I also get stuck a little bit on the mythology for England line or fill that in with any country. If it's a mythology, can't we play around with these things? Does it have to be representative of the nation that it came from? And we've, we've said mm -hmm. it's representative. We know that it was much more multicultural than, you know, than I think a lot of people think, but yeah, I guess I get stuck on that. It's a myth. It's, it's, it's fan fiction. It's, it's a creation. We can do what we want with this. Well, again, it comes down to definition. Some people see mythology as meaning a sacred story mm. uh, or, or, or somehow tied to their religion. And of course, that gets complicated. Uh, so yeah, for those people, it's heresy. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the bloggers who was railing about the Tolkien in diversity uh, seminar um, made it very clear that he was kind of sad we didn't have the Inquisition, whose job it was to shut down heresy like talking about Tolkien in this way and we and we sort of laugh because mm -hmm. it, it seems so ludicrous and 
2022, well, 2021, of course, but that's, that's scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, one, one should think, I mean, Tolkien adapted and, and freely changed uh, certain things. He was not just copying Beowulf. He did all sorts of fascinating things, but, but a lot of this, I think is, again, it's, it, it's a, it reflects where people are feeling. And if you're feeling that you're, you're under siege, you're, you're being threatened. Uh, and that is true for many white people today. It's, it's going to come out in this way. Um, or the issues around the religion. And if Christians are feeling threatened that somehow, I mean, this is one thing that interests me in terms of, of, and it's connected to this, this whole thing of he's a Catholic, therefore, this is what his work means, and you can't read it in any other way, which gets us right back to the problem of allegory versus applicability. Mm-hmm. And the whole conversation of author versus work. I mean, yeah. we separate these, which is something we've talked about a lot on this. Yeah. Creator yeah. versus creation. Yeah. On a personal level, I have to say that given Amazon's exploitation of workers and all the terrible things that have come out about Amazon and, and Jeff Bezos, I really find myself grumpy that I feel in any way obliged to defend <laughs> what Amazon Prime is doing, which is actually, as far as I can tell from only the trailer and a few photographs, baby steps toward diversity. This is not exactly them taking, as far as I can tell, huge risks. Yes, uh, I don't see huge risks either. Tiny baby steps. Um, And so it's irksome. (laughs) I'm going, but... I hear that, and I, I get. I, I've frequently been accused of uh, def- uh, defending Amazon, and everybody thinks I'm in their pay. Which my wife says I'm obviously doing wrong if I'm in the pay of Amazon. But, um, but, but anyway, uh, the the. Um, but yeah, I mean, exactly. It's 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 not it's not about it's not about like defending the company. It's 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 you know. It's just about looking at what is actually being done and 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 wanting to you know kind of be open-minded about this new work whatsoever it's 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 its source you know and sort of seeing what happens um i want to come back to the i'm gonna i want to come back to the mythology thing for a second and what you were saying about the sort of the the connection between mythology and the sacred because the thing is people will do kind of They'll do one thing, it seems to me, explicitly, and another thing sort of implicitly, right? The explicit thing that people will do. And again, and here I'm, I'm talking about, and, I'm, and, and, and I hope people understand, I'm trying not to just like caricature people who are concerned about this or who have the, you know, the, this, this, this uneasiness, because I think that there's, you know, I mean, I, I respect people who have these issues and I'm wanting to think through these things. But anyway... The explicit thing that I've seen people do connecting mythology to religion is thinking about the northernness, right? The Germanic stuff and saying, okay, we know that Tolkien's, you know, his his love, right, was for these northern things, for the the Norse stuff and the Finnish stuff and all of this Germanic stuff. Um, And that is just like that is not there's nothing African there. Right. There's nothing Asian. It's you know, that's that's a separate thing. And so therefore to import this other stuff in is to, you know, move away from what Tolkien wanted it to be. That's like the explicit. But again, they, they sort of appeal to Norse mythology. Right. And not because they but, but not, not because it's sacred to them. 
right? You know, they're not responding to this being like, how could you possibly, you know, this is like a Norse thing. Um, but yet there's a kind of fervor in that, which seems to me to suggest that there is an underlying and implicit thing that's going on there, which is that, like, and the explicit thing is what's connected to Norse mythology and to violate the, you know, to change that is to violate what Tolkien was trying to do. But the implicit thing really seems to be that Tolkien and my understanding of Tolkien is sacred to me, right? Uh, that, that, the, 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 the not just, see, okay, it's really hard to even talk about this, right? Because I, I almost said, you know, that like to take the, you know, Tolkien's work and do this to it is a violation, you know, of the sort of sacred text. But, but it's not even like, again, to even define what Tolkien, it's not even about Tolkien's work. It's about what Tolkien's work means to them and their sense of their personal connection to it. Right. Um, that it becomes it becomes a deal. Like you can you can hear and feel and Robin, I'm sure you've seen this in many places, the sort of like deeply personal reaction likes, you know, um, I, I, I know, in, you know, from my own personal experience, I see a lot. I hear a lot of similarities between how some Tolkien fans are responding on this issue and how fundamentalist Christians respond to some interpretations of the Bible. Like, I, I feel the same kind of tone sometimes uh, between those two things. Um, but uh, what would you say about this whole issue? I mean, what do you, what do you, how do you talk to people who's, who are, you know, for whom this is, uh, you know, really kind of stepping on their kind of personal sacred text in this way? Oh, that's a tough one. Um... For me, what you're describing is also tied up with the fallacy of authorial intentionality, mm -hmm. because the explicit surface argument is this is what Tolkien intended. This is what he wanted. Yes. Yes. As opposed to this is my interpretation of that I have created based on my reading of Tolkien through my lenses. Yes. Um, yes. So I have to admit in, in fandom spaces, I often don't engage very much um, in those. Like I don't even go on, I tried Twitter when it was new and went, 120 <laughs> characters, you've got to be and left. <laughs> Tumblr, even more so. I mean, I'm still on Dreamwith Journal, which was a clone of Live Journal for my, my fan activities where we could still do lengthy discussions. Uh, Facebook, I do a little bit, but it, it's it's still not a place for good discussion. And I mean, I think these platforms structurally promote uh, simplistic, uh, divisive, yes. conflict-driven algorithm clicks. So right. I just don't do that. Uh, when I'm in you know, classroom spaces, um, when I'm in talking with friends, I do want to hear what they have to say, how they read Tolkien, why they do that. I'm absolutely fascinated when um, there's a kind of reception writing, it's called reader response, which, you know, when my students heard about it, they thought, oh, if that's reader response, I'm just right. I just have to say, this is how I think about Tolkien and I'm a reader and I'm going, ha ha ha. No. <laughs> yeah. The common reader, student reader. response to the idea of, of reader response theory. <laughs> Reader response theory means you have to self-analyze yourself, which is the hardest freaking thing in the world to do. <laughs> um, Mike Drought wrote a brilliant essay on, on his first reading of The Silmarillion when he was nine years old and what it meant to him. And it, it is 
if you haven't read it, find it. It's in the Silmarillion 50 Years on Anthology. Martin Barker, who did the World Hobbit Project, uh, wrote uh, a brilliant essay on being a 1960s reader in Britain. Because as he says, everybody talks about the hippies in the US. Yeah. Uh, which was, of course, a big thing. But that's, it, right. that's more complicated. Uh, and he was, he was a radical. And it was his sense, what he traced through it is, his reading of Tolkien and what it took to combat evil completely informs his politics, mm -hmm. which are off to the right. And it's a brilliant thing. I wish Tolkien, because what I'm really interested in is it also is Tolkien scholarship. And I wish Tolkien scholarship would have more people talking about what brings them to their reading of Tolkien. Yes. Uh, and and also, I mean, Barker starts with, you know, he disliked certain changes in the movies, but he also disliked the same changes in the BBC, and that's what led him to realize this. Like, I once asked uh, some major Tolkien friends who hated Jackson's movies, you know, what is, you feel the most important thing in Tolkien to you? Hmm. One of them said, Aragorn is hero. And of course, he could not stand the more modern, self-doubting humility of Viggo Mortensen's Aragorn which mm -hmm. made actually more sense in a, in, in a film for 20th century audiences. I said, what would you think the audience would have done if he'd yanked out a sword and it was broken halfway off? No, in terms of his, his thing, that just wouldn't translate. So that's why he didn't like it. The other uh, friend, it was the mythology and the spirituality. And that isn't in Jackson's film. Right. I said, well, that's interesting because what I, what, one of the things that I most love in, in Middle Earth is middle earth and you know all those long descriptions of the landscape and the world that many people dismiss as travel hugs i love them and that was pretty cool in jackson's film and i would say the lighting of the beacons was even better in jackson's films than it was in the book so maybe one strategy would be instead of people coming in and saying oh tolkien meant this and this is what it is and this is wrong the more we sit around and talk about, well, this is what I love and why. Mm. But people have to be willing to do that. Mm -hmm. And they also then have to be willing to give up claiming authorial intentionality. Yes. And that's because and, that seems to me dangerous on two different levels. Right. On, firstly, just because, as you say, like, we don't know. We can't know. We don't. We don't have access to, you know, the brain of Tolkien, the human, right? All we have access to is his work. And so, um, if people are just going to say, you know, just insist that they know for sure exactly what Tolkien meant and exactly what Tolkien wanted and exactly what meant most to him in these works, and this is the proper way to interpret, then there's, there's that obvious uh, kind of well obvious to many <laughs> folks danger in that kind of approach. Um, but I think there's a second problem there as well, especially when you're then taking that and applying in, 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 in the current context, right? Applying it to a modern adaptation, right? To an adaptation that's going to be coming out in 2022. And that is, it seems to me to be fundamentally misunderstanding the entire, like the occasion of what's happening here, right? Um, let's say that for a moment, let's say that the first problem of, of, you know, insisting on Tolkien's intentionality and his meanings weren't true. Let's say we did have access to it and we knew for a fact, right, exactly what Tolkien meant and exactly what mattered most to Tolkien. Does that mean 
that a 2022 adaptation of his work would be obligated to 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 put that on the screen like i don't that's not how adaptations work that's not that's not how mythology works even right when you look at mythology and like mythological stories and how they are handed down and um what later writers of myth either following earlier mythology or continuing to develop that mythology like this is a living and growing thing right you know the uh, the the parallel that I often make because it's it's I think uh, well as a medievalist I think one of, is one of the clearest ones is the Arthurian tradition right and you think of all of the work that the Arthurian story did over the centuries right is still doing over the centuries right we just we just finished a, a signum course on uh, modern adaptations of of King Arthur so uh, uh, you know we've been thinking about the work that it's still doing here in the 20th century um, but. Uh, the idea that your responsibility as an adapter, as a reteller of a story, is first and foremost to do as closely as you can exactly what the original author did in his original context is actually like the more you think about it, a kind of a crazy idea. Like it's why even do that? There's not even any point. We already have the original. We don't need it again, right? The whole point of retelling is to, you know, and it's it's not to say that you disregard it, that you leave it behind, right? Um, but but a good adaptation is never just leaving it behind. It's always, you know, I think about the and again the one of the classic examples that I go back to because it's it's a classic example where you don't have uh, clearly like a first and second class citizen between the original and the adaptation, right? Or the you know. Or the, the response, the, the retelling. And I'm thinking of Homer and Virgil here, right? Um, Virgil comes back to this material, right? And he retells that story in some really important ways, right? Um, and it's that, and, and it meant a very new thing, a very different thing, right? In his context. Um, it's, it doesn't, invalidate homer right it doesn't change but it's like this is what happens like this is what mythology does this is this is like the job of mythology is to to allow people to you know thinking about mythology as a, a literary form right which tolkien did tolkien loved mythology as a literary form which is like a dying literary art in the who right who sits down to write mythology anymore like real mythology that's just not a way that modern people tend to think but tolkien did right and he was he was writing mythology on purpose, you know, and doing this kind of thing. And so, like, why should there be an intrinsic uh, objection to that, uh, you know, to, to these to the kinds of retellings, the kind of recastings uh, to so that this same mythology can speak to us now in 2022 instead of, uh, you know, to. 1950, you know, the 1950s England when Tolkien or, you know, 1930s and 40s when he was writing it or whatever. Um, I mean, that's, it's, yeah. So th there's, I said, there's a, those two very different levels on which I think the entire, but this is what Tolkien meant, uh, school is really troublesome. Yeah. And in fact, I'd expand it. Story. This is what story does. Capital. And I'm thinking of Carrie Pratchett's uh, mm -hmm. narrative uh, things that run through the universe that are the string theory of the universe and stories right. just keep replaying and changing. So, And Pratchett, great example of someone who's not adaptation, and although he might have started out parodying some of the Tolkien imitators, I think he's in much more in dialogue with Tolkien and some of the other stuff in fascinating ways. Um, 
So I totally agree with you. Here's another thing that bugs me about some of this rhetoric, because yes, I mean, this started with the Tolkien and diversity backlash. It was like, they're rewriting Tolkien. Well, well <laughs> no, we're not, because you can still go by them. Or they're canceling <laughs> Tolkien, or they're, you know, um, perverting Tolkien. I got uh, the Tolkien and diversity seminar, I had a number of us doing papers on queer approaches to Tolkien, and that really set off some of the people, and it really, so it was queerness in that session, although there were two Indian authors, um, and I mean India, the subcontinent, not Native American, doing uh, presentations on um, Tolkien and like Indian mythology, which is fascinating because if you're talking about mythology, let's talk about first get away from the idea that there's a single universal myth, uh, kick some of Jung and, and Campbell aside, but all of the national cultural mythologies, what are the similarities in heroes what, and all of that? Um, one of the people I follow on Facebook has a blog as an Indonesian and just posted a brilliant article on similarities between Tolkien's mythology and the Silmarillion and Indonesian mythology, which I'd never heard of. So there is, and, and this goes also to, if Tolkien was only writing for Englishmen, how in the world do however many gazillion translations of his and popularity all over the world, how did that work? Yeah. Because his work is all over the place. And translations, but the thing that really is bugging me about the the thing about the the uh, attack on the Prime series one besides blaming the Tolkien Society for it, which is completely ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> completely ridiculous. They, they are not the Tolkien estate. No, I never. I have not seen, and if anybody has seen, I would love to get it. Criticism of the Tolkien grandchildren at this point who sold the rights. We talked about this last week, exactly. For a gazillion dollars. Mm -hmm. and, and trust me, I'm also sitting here muttering to myself because it turns out Jeff Bezos is a huge fan of Tolkien and he mm -hmm. wanted this. Yeah, yeah. And he's pouring more, it's the most money that has ever been put into anything. Um, and, but the Tolkien family, doesn't get criticized, but yet they're making big bucks off it. Mm -hmm. And if we're talking about, you know, uh, critics who are who are enabling this, why aren't they being attacked? Yeah, I'm not. By the way, disclaimer: I do not want them attacked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I said exactly the same thing last week. Like, I'm not advocating this, but I do <laughs> don't understand it. Like, I, it's it's actually it's a strange sort of thing. I I I wonder if it's connected. Is there some kind of like emotional resistance because again the, the feeling is yeah. we're circling the wagons and defending tolkien against these invaders right, right. so if we if we if we impugn the tolkien estate oh, well that no that's what we're they, they are identified with what we're trying to protect right and so therefore that it does, like emotionally doesn't fit right yeah. they don't I, as far as i can see that they're not besides which they're not nearly as um as easy a target as big evil corporate Amazon, right? So um, we can say we can say lots of, you know, we can say any number of unpleasant things about Jeff Bezos, but we don't, we're not as comfortable saying uncomfortable things, uh, you know, say, saying things like that about, you know, the Tolkien errors and the Tolkien estate. Yeah. Well, you and I always did. Every time we've talked, we find some, some things where we're thinking the same thing about. So this does not surprise me. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. 
but again, working working past emotion, and 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 into this issue of, you know, the Tolkien um, as a human being was very uh, fond of defending his copyright, mm-hmm. <laughs> and very interested in getting the money that was, yes. was due him. And as a you know underpaid academic, I completely sympathize with that. Uh, and apparently uh, the original contract he made with uh, Unwin and Allen for you know 50% of the profits and, and instead of taking an advance because they didn't think it would uh, make much money still operates. Right. So again, if we're looking at who has profited economically from that, it is, um, it is the family and the family estate, so to speak. So yeah. they, they are a part of that. Um, and like I said, I don't, I don't want to attack them, but if you're going to look at how these things are, are produced mm-hmm. and the capitalistic productions, you can say very clearly, and, and Tolkien does, has a very anti-capitalist message in some of his work. If you're looking at Saruman as a kind of capitalist, but yet, his work is inevitably embedded in the capitalist and post-capitalist economy, which involves movies. Right. And in terms of adaptations, when you're translating from an adapt from a written work to a visual work, I mean, I used to tease people who were all anti, you know, it should be filmed the way it was written. I said, oh, so you want to watch the entire Council of Elrond in real time? <laughs> right. That four-page long committee meeting? <laughs> Where they're doing nothing but sit there, uh, and like, yet, do, 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 do we have to show the landscape description for exactly as long as it would take to read it? Right. Lordy. So, like, well, yeah. I'd be for that. Shot would be seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, oh, hang on, no, we're still showing. Okay, now let's zoom in on the plants, right? Let's zoom in on the plants. Okay, look, there's the, there's, there's, uh, there's, you know, like, I'm thinking of the description of Athelion, right, and all the flowers that that you know, and 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 herbs I and love things. It's wonderful, but again, like, would make really bad cinema, yeah. <laughs> really, really bad cinema. Like, nobody's gonna pay t- that ticket. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. now we look at the the life cycle of the Malorn tree. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, but I it's... mean, some people, some some people who try to read Tolkien are, are put off by those long descriptions too. It sure. is very Absolutely. much individual responses. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Um, so there, there will be the differences. I find myself intrigued by the fact that, you know, they're, the way the, the sale was made, they're looking at the um, second age and, and some of the other stuff. And, and I think, I mean, my main thing is I think it will be interesting to see what they do with it. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. anticipate a whole possible lot of, I mean, there was a huge bump in sales of Tolkien's books after Jackson's films. There was a huge bump in academics being asked to go around and get paid to talk about Tolkien. Uh, There was all sorts of positive things, if you see it that way, even though much of, uh, there were many outraged uh, people about it. I think the the series will do the same thing. Yeah, I think so too. Um, Yeah, I mean... (laughs) One of the other things that I think I'm still vaguely thinking about the mythology thing, but something that I think, you know, I'm interested to hear, Robin, what you think about the change in the evidence that we can see of change over time in Tolkien's Mm -hmm. 
expressed attitudes towards these things because, and this is something, this is one of those things that I never have time to explain on Twitter <laughs> is that, you know, I, there might have been, a, I mean, I believe that there was a time when Tolkien was feeling this like upsurge of affection towards England and this, um, I believe him when he says that like the origins of his mythology is the desire to create a, a native English, you know, like there wasn't any, there was all this French stuff and Celtic stuff, but nothing natively English. Like, I can believe that as a kind of an origin story for his uh, for his mythology writing back in the day, um, you can even see it in things like uh, how the tug of war between Asa and Olmo ends up pulling Ireland away from the British Isles, right? So we even get like a how the British Isles, like why the British Isles look like this, right? As well as some kind of um, uh, uh, political commentary on the English Irish relationships over the years and things. But anyway, like, so, okay. Right. I, again, I can see that as an origin story, but when you look at where things end up, right. You know, you look at, at not only Tolkien's writings in his later life, but you th look at Tolkien's thinking about his writings and his comments on his writings and his answers to questions and things in like the sixties. Right. Um, well after he began and set out with that thing, which even in, you know, the 50s, he was describing as a long time ago. Right. Um, how, what he used to think about a long time ago. Um, but um, when I was young, when I was young, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, what I feel in when I when I look at the Lord of the Rings and I look at the kind of impact that it has had and the way that people have responded to it over the years, um, increasingly, I mean, a thing that I have said before is that, you know, if Tolkien set out to write a mythology for England, what he ended up doing was writing a mythology for the modern world. Like there is a, there is a, you know, there are a lot of ways in which clearly the Lord of the Rings, especially, but even really his legendarium as a whole resonates with people in the modern world with a variety and breadth of people in the modern world far beyond anything that Tolkien... I mean, remember, like, he thought the mythology for England was, like, ridiculously ambitious and laughable, right? And what he ends up achieving, I think, is something far beyond that, far greater than that, far... And, you know, more than anything that, that, that he certainly set out to do deliberately. My reading of his later letters is that he seems to have a, a slightly... Not that he ever really himself interpreted it that way, or I think even really lived to see it fully, but um, but that he um, he has a changing view of the kind of global status of the Lord of the Rings, not just in reception, but I mean even in the world itself. Like I'm thinking about the later letters when he's, you know, he said at the beginning. Right, uh, like when you like in the prologue to the Lord of the Rings, that th this this is from the you know the northwest of the old world, right? This is like uh, you know the northwest of of Europe and Asia. But when he starts then laying out the maps and talking later on about uh, you know like what uh, real world equivalent latitudes are these places on, it's clear that his view of things is kind of growing and expanding a little bit. Anyway, I just I wonder what you think about how his own. Uh, sort of perspective began to to sh do, do you see any shift in his perspective any any kind of like a decrease in what might have begun as a kind of sort of parochial project sort of talking about english mythology and thinking about you know like some of the early early so i'm thinking of things like courtierian among the trees like the early poem and stuff where you you clearly see him 
kind of dealing with and processing like local English traditions, dealing with local English places, right? And and you know, beginning to kind of build a mythology and that about the you know the 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 invisible elves that you can't see but you can still sometimes kind of encounter in certain places in Warwick and 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 stuff like that, right? Um, you see that stuff at the very beginning, but he's not talking like that anymore at the end. Um, and he seems to be thinking very. Uh, very differently. I don't know. Do you do you see a a a, a shift of, of of that kind or of some other kind in in Tolkien's ideas as as he move forward? Uh, I think there are all sorts of shifts as as he he goes through things. And this is another thing I used to say when my students want to talk about Tolkien thought X and Y. Well, was that nineteen twenties Tolkien, nineteen thirties, nineteen you know? Let's come yeah. up. He died in what seventy three, seventy four. I mean, a lot changed in uh, Britain and the UK and England in that time. So, yes. Um, and in fact, again, this is in Demetra's book. She shows how as he shifted to writing a novel, as men came into his universe, mm -hmm. uh, the hobbits away from the elves. And writing a novel is not like writing mythology, although his novel is very mythic. Right. Um, right. But it is different. So, yes, all of it. And, and also one of the tipping point she identifies is going from flat earth to the round earth mm -hmm. as a major shift. So yes, there are yes. changes over time and contradictions. And at the end of his life, and I'm thinking about, oh, what's that one chapter in um, the Silmarillion where the human woman and the elf brother. Oh, you're uh, thinking about uh, the Atherbeth with uh, Finrod Atherbeth. and Andreth? Yeah. Finrod and Andreth. That's theory and philosophy <laughs> that mm -hmm. is not mythology uh, and Christopher Tolkien has a, a comment and I, I've, I've, I've dipped in very deeply to certain parts of the history of Middle Earth that have to deal with the parts of Lord of the Rings that I'm most interested in he said he was he, he was writing theology and philosophy and, and and all of that at the end of his life he was really trying to get deep down and do that so yeah. People who, and, and I have to be careful here because it's like, oh, no, I'm an elitist. I'm saying you can't talk about Tolkien if you haven't, you know, read blah, 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 blah. Right. You don't have to read anything but what you love. But if there's a whole bunch of stuff you haven't read, you sort of need to limit your argument because you may not be aware of all the contradictions yeah. that are yeah. out there in terms of what he himself said. Right. So, yes, the, the change was very much and... Um, I mean, he changed, I mean, one of my favorite characters, of course, is Aowen. And if you go back and look at his development of Aowen, he had lots of uh, versions of Aowen and, and story of Aowen. And they just got, yes. uh, David Craig did a great analysis of how they all layered in. And she's one of the most complex characters because of it. Yes. Couldn't make up his mind. Was he going to kill her off? Was he going to get married? What? So I think these complexities, these contradictions, these changes are part of what has resulted in Tolkien's work and or the Tolkien phenomenon in adaptations, translations, uh, you know, all the rock and roll and other types of musicians who were influenced by Tolkien and write about it has made it such mm -hmm. a global phenomenon. Yes. And it, it wouldn't be there if it weren't for all this, this, this messiness and complexity. I mean, Mike Drought was pointing out, you know, nobody can really create a mythology because they come from oral traditions and centuries, if not millennia. But Tolkien came as close as anyone did. But it's all those variations and, and differences. 
So yeah, that's just, this is why he did it. And uh, the Amazon Prime adaptation will be one more more thing. Uh, one of my favorite fan scholars, Don Feligand, or Don Wolf Tuma, just has been posting uh, some blog entries on it. She thinks that the Prime series, like the Jackson films, will result in more people reading Tolkien. That mm -hmm. what happens in Tolkien fandom, based on her surveys, and she's one of the few Tolkienists who does surveys and can handle it, people uh, might come into the fandom never having read Tolkien, might think they're there just for the, the slashy um, hot men fix or so, whatever, but they almost always end up reading Tolkien and reading in more depth. Right. So, and that is a counter argument to what a lot of the Tolkienists I know and some of the fans who seem to think that these adaptations will ruin Tolkien and his work and will, you know, drive it out and nobody will ever read it again and it will be terrible. So I don't know why they're such tied to such doom saying about it, but uh, I don't think it's going to happen that way. I think as it's affecting their own personal reaction, you know, it's yeah. a lot easier to just get mad at the creator than, than to say, hey, you're hurting this thing that I love. And so many people are forgetting that this is just one interpretation. You know, we keep saying it that, you know, we say the Amazon adaptation, but it's made by people and it's their interpretation of this story. And if we don't like it, that doesn't change the text for us. I think what's different with this one is that we don't actually have a lot of text. You know, there's not something yes. that can be ruined because we don't have a lot of information. So perhaps that's almost more fearful. I think somebody even said something similar in the chat of just like, we don't know what's gonna happen because we don't know what it's about. So like all of that unknown is really terrifying that Amazon could just go off the deep end and bring unicorns into play, you know, who knows? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's, and uh, you know, I wanted to um, just, heartily endorse what you were just saying robin about uh asking people you know when people say this is what tolkien thought to say when exactly are you yeah. saying which tolkien um tolkien. boy this is another thing like um <laughs> that has come up a lot for me uh in uh uh in on twitter in the last uh, month or so and that is the not only just sort of very sort of simplistic like, this is what Tolkien said. This is what, you know, this is what's going on. This is what this means. Um, so, of course, like, I've been talking to a lot of people about dwarves and their beards uh, lately. And oh, yeah. um, uh, and so, you know, I, I, I there are a couple times that I had somebody on Twitter say, so tell me now and, like, once and for all, what do you think, you know, what do you say about, like, what Tolkien said about the beards and dwarf women? And I said, I, Tolkien said that... Uh, dwarf women have beards. Tolkien said dwarf women don't have beards. Tolkien said dwarf women don't exist. All three of those things are true at different places and different times. Like his ideas were in continual change. And um that uh and 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 the thing is that what I f have found so often is that people and because you used the word which is a dirty word um for a lot of these people which is contradictions. Right. Um, and people think I'm attacking Tolkien by right. saying this, right? That I'm like impugning him in some way and yes. saying that there's, that really there's like. Insanity. 
Yeah, like there's inconsistencies and contradictions in Tolkien. I'm like, no, 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 like, no. He's just a person whose ideas were developing and evolving. And what's more, we've been given access to that in an unusual way through the history of Middle Earth, right? To be able to see the ways in which his ideas were growing and changing over time, which I think is fantastic. Like, I've, you know, I, the more I've studied the history of Middle Earth, the more I have come to respect Tolkien and his creative process and, um, you know, how he got from one point to the next. And it's just just enthralling to look at. But if you have this really, um, like, narrow and kind of locked-in view of, you know, like, there is one... Um, there is one text, there is one interpretation of the text, and this is what Tolkien said. It just, again, it seems to be... I've been having a really hard time overcoming that obstacle, basically, of like people people are just hearing what I'm saying as an like as an attack or some act of disrespect towards Tolkien, um, when it's absolutely not. I and and it's it's hard to um, it's hard to under it's hard to get very far in communicating with folks uh, who have that kind of anxiety, you know, like that kind of view of what it means for Tolkien to not be contradictory and you know there are obvious right answers to these questions right uh, and uh, you're not necessarily giving them um, yeah. I, I think he also said dwarf uh, women were very rarely seen that they very mm -hmm. rarely went around and traveled around yeah uh, so yeah. and and some of it is as I if I'm recalling correctly is framed in some of the appendices. That's the only, is, yeah, the, there's a, there's one half a paragraph lot, in the yeah, appendices. Which has a whole lot of framing of, well, so-and-so archivist reported so-and-so, and this is, you know, yes. this is another thing to sort of pull people away from the idea that there's one single story and say, well, there's all these frames of, uh, I translated this from the Red Book of Westmarch and various people wrote this and it was copied in the archival history. I mean, my, my medievalist colleague that I always worked with, because Unlike Corey, I am not a medievalist, uh, would would talk about how much uh, it showed Tolkien's knowledge of what it's like to work in an archive, mm -hmm. to work with archival scholarship, that you have these handwritten things and they're, they have the scribes' names and there are all these errors in them and, and that. And again, that's, that's, it's a brilliant piece of craftsmanship and artistic work to create that, right. that gives... An incredible impression of, as Mike Grotta said, illusion of depth and historicity. This is where we just all feel we can inhabit this world. We just seem to inhabit different parts of it. So, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Hey, so I've a, a. I know you've been really interested in you know fan response and reader response for a really long time. Um, one thing I've been saying uh, is that a lot of the panic about the Amazon series seems to focus on people who are less than 35 years old, who don't remember what it was like right before the Peter Jackson films came out, you know, in that period of the, when we were in the parallel spot, right? We knew that they were coming. We'd seen a little bit of stuff, but we didn't know for sure what he was going to do. That period of like anxiety that was there. Do you see uh, like what similarities and differences do you see between the kind of fan response leading up to the Amazon series versus the fan response leading up to uh, the Peter Jackson films? I mean, I know obviously there are some differences that are informed just by 
current cultural discussions that are happening now that were not current back then and, and everything. Um, but just as far as the, you know, on the simply Tolkien fandom being, you know, uncertain about what this adaptation was going to do kind of question. Um, well, sort of speaking aside that I think are there multiple Tolkien fandoms now, it's huge. Right. But generally speaking, I think there are similarities and it's, it's expressed in the same kind of way, a need to defend Tolkien against the um, adaptation that is not going to be completely true to the spirit and the mm -hmm. intention of, of the author. Um, as I understand it, and it's, it's uh, actually a friend of mine, Alicia Fox Lenz, who I, I'm yeah. pretty sure you, you both know. We do. Uh, she does marketing and other stuff. She was doing some fascinating posts about how brilliantly Jackson and co interacted with fandom in terms of wondering.net, releasing all, all this other stuff. Amazon apparently has been doing exactly the opposite. She, she was sort of critiquing some of their lack of information and how they were handling it when they were releasing it. And just from a sort of her, one of her professional perspectives, which is how you market things like this. Mm -hmm. So that might, you know, have made it a little, little worse. But since I have no way of sort of going back and, and uh, comparing it, and I really, since it was Peter Jackson's films, which I fell in love with, I saw Fellowship 45 times in the theaters, took me back to Tolkien, took me into Tolkien fandom, online fandom, and into academic scholarship. So I really wasn't cognizant of what was happening in the Tolkien fandom beforehand, although I saw it played out. There were various Tolkien purists who were completely anti-Tolkien, who were creating their own archives and, and contests and stuff and it was very much the we must circle and defend Tolkien against the hordes of barbarians coming in. But I'll push on this and say that this is true in other fandoms. This is not just a Tolkien phenomenon. Right. Same thing happens in Star Trek mm -hmm. uh, fandom that I've seen. In fact, I still remember one and, and I was a Trekkie uh, and in a Star Trek fan group before the internet. Uh, but one time I saw on the internet before one of the, I guess, Abrams movies came out, this old school fan saying, oh, all you new people, you have to go back and read all our fanfic before you can dare write your own fanfic. And the new fans are saying, no, we don't. This is not school. You know, fandoms do what fandoms do. So, and of course, I gather there are similar things in Doctor Who, which is one of those long, complicated uh, uh, yes. fandoms. Uh, so yeah, book and film adaptations, multiple versions of it. I guess there's, and it's tied to age and generation. So I think you're right. There's, there's definitely part of that. There is a, a desire to defend what you see as the purity of the work, which at some point, if you're old enough and have lived through this enough, you're just going, meh, <laughs> I'm going to do my Tolkien stuff. You guys, blessings upon you. Uh, unless you're, of course, uh, going off to be neo-Nazis, in which case, uh, no. That's much. So, yeah. I feel like any, every generation has their adaptation, and this is just the <laughs> one that this generation is rallying to say, no, not my Tolkien. Except there's, and I was interested in this, uh, on because I'm, I'm going through and collecting all those comments. There is pushback on the Amazon uh, YouTube 
trailer uh, thing. It doesn't happen until late in the thread, and we, I'm sure almost nobody has read through all 4,670, which was what it was uh, when I was there. But there are some very nuanced and lengthy pushback to and, and challenges, especially to the people who just keep copying and repeating and cutting pasting the mythology for England one. So there's, there's pushback. And I have a, a, a number of friends in, in some of the more, I guess, progressive areas of the fandom who are, are just over, over the moon <laughs> happy with what's happening. But they're discussing it in private and closed spaces because they feel, based on their past experience, that if they try and discuss it in open in Twitter and, and on YouTube yep. and stuff, they will be attacked. Right. So that might and be I've heard that, that from from the conservatives as well, you know, who <laughs> are uh, who also feel that if they like, if, you know, if they critique it, they're they get attacked as well. Um, so, yeah, no, exactly. I, I do think that that's that is that is a big issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I my experience, you know, Robin, from being. You know, and, and I was not yet, I was still in grad school when the Peter Jackson films were coming out. So I wasn't like really kind of part of the, you know, fully part of the, the Tolkien studies culture yet. But, um, but I, I mean, I remember so many things that I'm hearing from people um, are just so exactly like what I heard before, you know, from the, especially the, they're going to ruin it like, oh, now, like the, 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 like the, that core anxiety, right? Of like, they're going to get Tolkien wrong and then every, it's going to do serious harm because then like everyone's going to see, they're going to think that this is what Tolkien said. And then, you know, it's going to like, the, you know, these people who might have read Tolkien are never going to read Tolkien because they're going to be, you know, they're going to, and it's going to be horrible. Um, I, I took exactly, exactly what people said before the Peter Jackson series came out. And as you have said, it is perfectly clear that there has that no matter what anybody thought about the films um there was a a wonderful boost both to tolkien fandom and to tolkien scholarship that emerged from the peter jackson films and if the amazon films are bad people won't watch them or talk about them for long and they won't have a big impact right if they're good then it will have a similar <laughs> impact and it will be a good impact on Tolkien. I wonder if that's the, some of the fear though, that like if somebody has this really personal experience with the text, like so many of these Tolkien fans do, and then there's this adaptation coming that they might have to share their favorite text or they might have to defend how big of a fan that they are. They mm -hmm. go straight to the offensive. And those of us that are just along for the ride and enjoy it, or we're passionate about it, you, you, I don't want to fight. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna rise to that and be offensive. There's no reason for me to be defensive. So sometimes I think it's just there's just loud, scared voices at the table that speak up as opposed to anything else. And that's where I think it's really interesting to get into fan scholarship of like, you know, if you're sifting through all those comments, how nice to hear that there is some pushback. But look how long it took. For them to one brave person and then a little community to find kind of recognition because it's a lot easier to be loud and mean mm -hmm. yeah but. and again that's the structural structural component of things mm. um i know a lot of the people who've been teaching tolkien uh from the 70s on um when i talked to them at conferences and stuff when jackson's film were, were were so huge were very worried that they would never again be able to teach tolkien without it being polluted 
by the film that the students would come in, you know, and, and interpret it that way. Uh, I found that by the time I retire, I was retiring, that um, when I was teaching a Tolkien class, I would have students come in, and I often taught Tolkien and Jackson, or just Jackson, so I, I you know, did the whole thing. Uh, I had students come in, now granted this is rural Texas, but still, who had never read Tolkien, had never seen the films, just had the vaguest sense that there was something out there called that. So, in fact, and, and it happens too, because Jackson's films are old enough now, I think there are all sorts of people who haven't seen them. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I'm sort of looking on the Amazon Prime thing, how many people reference Jackson's films in the context of the series and mm -hmm. what sort of correlation they're making between that. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it, it becomes an interesting thing. And I think you're right that at some point it's about a level of personal control mm -hmm. that people would like to have over a text and really can't ever have because of all those other pesky people <laughs> who want to have the same control. Right. And how much of an influence it can have and, and who listens to them. So I guess in one way, I'm glad that, uh, you know, I've been looking at the marketing of Amazon a fair bit as well, or the lack thereof in comparison to Jackson. And I guess in one way, I'm glad for that, because that means they're not rising to any of the vitriol that's being thrown at them. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we still have nothing to go off of. So that's very frustrating. Yeah. Right. And, and what, the, aren't there planned five seasons five seasons and with the idea that they may expand it so i mean that's so much more content than than even jackson's films plus the special features yes. uh, could have, could ever be so it's going to be it'll be complicated mm -hmm. but, uh, Definitely. but yeah if 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 somehow they really enough people think they're bad they'll just sort of drop out i mean the hobbit films are an example of that mm -hmm. the actor, i like some things about the hobbit films very much but they just did not create that much of an impact and, and haven't seen that much of scholarship or publication about them. So these yeah, things. Gonna... Uh oh, uh -oh. <laughs> losing you there, Maggie. Hang on. We, we, oh, sorry. We... I just said Corey's got a few thoughts on that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's true. It's true. I do. Well, sorry, uh, uh, Robin, I know we need to let you go, um, uh, but uh, thanks for joining us. This was a, oh, a, a really fun discussion. Me. Really yeah. lovely chatting with you. Appreciate you coming. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And I look forward to chatting with you more as we get more information. So Yeah. We can we can start uh, sharing ideas once the, the series is out and see what's That's happening. That's right. That's right. So. Yeah. Awesome. Excellent. Thanks so much for coming along. Okay, thank you. Take care. Good luck and I will see you around. Thanks, okay. Robin. Bye now. Bye. -bye. Bye. Interesting yeah. stuff. I, I I guess in one way I just feel really like Yep, she said all the things we've said too. You know, it's, <laughs> yes, it's very like reassuring when your own academic community is like, right? Isn't this interesting? And, <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah. No, there's a lot of things, and I know that there are, you know, a lot of things that we've been talking about today are things that people are uncomfortable talking about. You know, and I just like we we want to be able to talk about that. You know, this is safe and friendly place, <laughs> safe and friendly place to discuss these things. Um, and, uh, you know, we certainly don't want to be afraid to talk about things that, you know, are going to be controversial or people are going to have strong opinions about. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's important. And I think a really important thing um, that was sort of emerging from this is just kind of the importance of people thinking, <sighs> backing up and sort of thinking, what is behind 
the statements that you're making, right? Because so many times people will be basically sitting on sort of obviously indefensible things. Like, I know exactly what Tolkien meant Mm -hmm. or what Tolkien uh, was trying to say, you know, about this particular thing. And that's, you can't know that, right? Right. You You just can't. And if you're insisting, if you're taking this position, which like on any objective view is at the very least a tenuous position, right? And you're building your fortress around it. Why? Why are you building your fortress around that? Right. And, and, and this is true. This is, you know, I, I'm not just trying to attack people who are, you know, opposed to the Amazon thing or whatever. Like it's, this is true on both sides. This is absolutely true on both sides. If you, um, if you, you know, so if, if you believe, if you're really uncomfortable uh, with, you know, people of color being cast in an, in a Tolkien adaptation, you might you might be building one particular fortress, right? If you are really excited about people of culture being cast, people of culture, people of color being cast uh, in Tolkien, you you might be building a different fortress, mm-hmm. right? Um, like they're 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 you know it's, it's the same kind of thing. And but how important it is to just sort of back up and say, you know, like uh, like she was talking about self awareness, right? How reader response theory is all about self awareness. Like why am I having this reaction? Like what? I was just going to say that. Yeah. Her whole discussion about the, the self-awareness reader response of the, first of all, exactly what you said before, like, you know, some people are quite scared to talk about these things. And I completely put myself in that category as of like a year ago and then decided to challenge myself and teach this scary course about these issues in fantasy literature in person. And it's been one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because you have to talk about these things and I'm still learning how to do it. So I'm very honest with my students of like, I don't really know how to navigate this see but here we go and we're going to do it together and please be patient with me and that's the part i think folks are missing please be patient with the people around you because there's so much about your own self-assessment you have to be able to do you know unconscious bias is so real and your own experience coming into these things is so significant you know we were talking about religion and fantasy lit and um we were talking about harry potter and i was like there just isn't a lot of religion in these texts and then one student said, uh, yeah, they celebrate Christmas. That's the only holiday they celebrate. And I'm like, oh, fair point. You know, I hadn't even clocked because that shows my own, you know, privilege and experience. So like trying to meet people where they are and having these open minds and these open conversations is just a thing I think we're missing. So like there's your own self-awareness, but also patience with the people around you. Because yes. maybe they've never heard of the word unconscious bias. Maybe yeah. they've never had to take a step back and be like, oh, it's weird that I think that. Right. And it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. And even thinking about that, as you say, applying that at the next level, right? Not Mm. just, I need to be aware of the significance of like why I have these strong reactions to things, but also why do I have these strong reactions to other people's strong reactions, right? Why does, why do I feel, and again, you know, yes, like why, you know, you've got a person, right, who says like, whiteness is essential to Tolkien's vision, right? And to compromise that is to change Tolkien's vision. And they have this really strong reaction. Like, yeah, that, with with that person, like, okay, let's stop and think about this, dude. Like, what is, you know, why do you feel so strongly about this? What's going on here? Um, and I think this is, this isn't really about, is this really about Tolkien, right? Or is this completely yeah. about Tolkien, right? Yeah. But then again, at the same time, and I would, and this is the thing that I think that I hear fewer people saying, and Maggie, it's why I think it's so important what you were just saying, the reaction against that, right? People hear that 
and they immediately start like eye rolling and oh my goodness, like this is the kind of racist troll that I'm talking about. And it's like, whoa, 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 wait, examine that. Examine yeah. that reaction that you have yeah. to that person's reaction, right? Why, why are you doing this? Why, you know, and if we can all <laughs> take some deep breaths before reacting in these ways, um, even in, and you know, and it's hard, be, it's what I find especially hard and especially dangerous about that kind of reaction, about the marginalization of people who have these reactions, which, and I'm not saying like, I'm not trying to say that you're wrong for finding, like, you know, if you find these people's, re, you know, reactions objectionable, that makes you wrong. Um, but there is a sense, like, it is part of the current sort of culture, cultural orthodoxy right now, right? Like, when you, if you say, if somebody is talking about how essential whiteness is to Tolkien and you react against that, right, and dismiss that person as a racist troll, you are being... You're being, in, you're, you're falling in line. You know, again, I'm not saying that you don't necessarily, you don't believe that. I'm not saying you're being uh, artificial in that, but you are falling in line with like the current orthodoxy, right? There is social pressure to say that and to be seen to say that kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so again, there's so many reasons to just sort of stop and say like, okay, what's well, not, because uh, my personal opinion, and this is just a completely personal view of my own. I think that going along with like the flow of, social pressures is almost always a bad idea. Like if you, if you, if you find yourself saying something, which is like, you know, heatedly supporting something that many, many other people are heatedly, mm -hmm. heatedly supporting, you should probably be careful, right? Take it, take, take a breath, right. And not do it. Right. Uh, or at least think about it. And or at least think, think about it. Yeah. I mean, if, if you are naturally agreeing with them after some processes, sure. But if you're waiting two seconds to just go, me too, hang on. Yeah. That's it's, it, me as well. It is, it is really hard. I mean, again, I, I think back to that and I've, I've forgotten his name already. Um, but uh, that one guy on Twitter that I was talking to who was like, you know, attacking me uh, after the IGN video. Um, and uh, he, you know, finally said, like, I'm just so frustrated because I have these concerns and every time I express them, everybody just calls me a racist and, and dismisses me. Well, and that's not right. Like, it's, that's not, yeah. that's not, it's not right to treat people like that. Like, it's just, it doesn't matter whether you agree with them or don't agree with them. That, that, that's not right either. So again, but all of these, like, this is the, separation of strong emotional strong emotion from reaction right whenever you find yourself in that kind of reacting from a place of passion like that really i it's just i think it's just really good life advice to be thinking about where's that coming from you know what's going on there next guest our next guest should be like a meditation leader or something to just be like, <laughs> exactly just center ourselves and not, Honestly, I feel like yeah the things i do in this really tough class is just like everybody take a moment have a think right. <laughs> sometimes that's all you need but i also think that fits in really well with the entire study of adaptation you know like we had this whole conversation about the language with betrayal and faithful yes. and yes. because really personal thing like I have a very strong relationship with this text and if you're going to come in and show me something from your brain I'm going to be real peeved about that because this is my brain get out right. you know so that right. it's just immediately personal so it's quite hard to separate that out so you know while we can talk about reaction versus analysis 
it's hard to do that with adaptation because there's so much personal emotion wrapped up in it. Yeah. 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 And yeah, yeah um, looking at nameless, um, like, sorry, nameless, Carnum, um, the dopamine hit from Twitter. There's also that, I mean, there's just people that are just looking for a platform and just want to be heard as well. And man, social media is great in so many ways, but it has also provided a jump straight onto that platform <laughs> yeah no it's it is it is it is hard and at the end of the day i can't um i don't know i mean it's easy to understand hard to respect people who use social media platforms just to just to get attention yeah. i mean i have i have i feel compassion for people who you know live in that place um but i can't really respect that especially when uh it so often goes hand in glove with you know um mm -hmm. being cruel to other people for the sake of getting mm -hmm. attention right um i mean there was the one of all of the uh uh kind of um cheerful messages i received on social media over the last month the one that i the one sort of category that i just didn't respond to at all was people who were clearly just were like insulting me for this, like hoping I would like react, you know, respond to them in some way. Um, the, uh, you know, negative attention is better than no attention. Uh, right. <laughs> crowd. It's easy to spot, you know, but I mean, it, it's, and it's the same thing. Like it's just immediately showing you, you're not going to have a rational conversation with them because if they're not willing to take a breath and allow some grace and open the conversation, then why on earth should you? Right. <laughs> I mean, in theory, yes, we should as educators, that's what we do. But in the realm of Twitter, no, I think a little self-preservation is allowed and you can just engage with the people that are interested in actually having a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. And it's, uh, it's, yeah, but like I say, it also it also comes back to the reaction against. Uh, I feel like, well, okay, it's hard. I was gonna say I feel like one of the words that I'm trying to remove from my own vocabulary is the word troll, uh, yeah. because that's a it's th that word usually gets, it's it's a method of dismissing people, right? Now it's hard because like trolls are real, <laughs> right? Like I mean that's like the, that's why I haven't fully succeeded because like it's. It is a description of a genuine category of people who really are just, uh, you know, I don't know what. I don't know exactly what their own I mean, personal yeah. motivations are. But and I think um, of it just as the verb. They're they're trolling. They're just so, trolling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if if they're actively doing that, then it's tough to not call them trolls. Yes. Yes. Exactly. But, um, but yeah, it's but too often you see it just simply used as a way to dismiss someone like, you know, um, the whole, like, you know, you don't agree with me. Or, so you're just a troll or you're not, you know, you have not justified yourself in some way in my eyes. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard. Like, th that's the impulse that I, I think is, is really important to, uh, to, to avoid. Cause sometimes, you know, if you take the time to try to talk to somebody, uh, you might find they're actually interested in yeah. talking. You know, they're actually interested in being listened to, um, even if uh, their approach is not always constructive right. <laughs> at the beginning. Um, but um, yeah, uh, Bjarne Sonner, I agree. Uh, he says, I have the same issue with gaslight. It's a legitimately useful word that's been misappropriated as a weapon. Yes, there are so many words that um, 
uh, are, yeah, just uh, like, yeah, uh, Gaslight, Snowflake, uh, 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 Karen, right? I mean, there are all these things that, that get thrown out there and they're just not Helpful. useful anymore. Yeah. 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 Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, so it's, it's, it is really important. Boy, I didn't really expect to be doing this kind of public service announcement at the end of this episode. But it, I was it's... trying to figure out how to steer us back into some of the other things we talked about. I'm like, there's there's no sequitur no. for that. I do want to talk a little bit about the mythology. Yeah. From first. yeah. I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, something we didn't really get to dig too deep down into, but I'd be curious just to chat with you about is just like, what can create somebody's interpretation of a mythology? So, like, there's yeah. so much nuance into that that how can we be so critical about something that is a fiction anyway and yeah it was it was just really interesting to hear the, the two of you speak about that no it's 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 a fascinating question because there's on the one hand right the fact that it's mythology kind of places it above it's not just like when you're reading mythology there's it's not just like picking up your favorite novel you know like there's there's a difference in the relationship between you and the work right in that sense there's something kind of bigger going on in the mythology which you can connect with in various ways but it's not it's not sort of just you but then on the other hand if you do connect with it it becomes intensely personal right um and uh, it, it's another thing to kind of uh, uh, kind of bring in some of this, the same ideas we were just talking about again before. Another insult that I hear people throw out is the sacred text thing, right? You know, the treating Tolkien like a sacred text. I don't want to make fun of that. I don't want to mm -hmm. make fun of that, you know, because I've known a lot of people for whom there is a sense in which Tolkien was a sacred text, not in some, like, empty-headed, uh, deluded way, Right. But in the sense, I have known many people. I've like, one of the things that you find in being <laughs> part of the job description of the Tolkien professor is listening to people tell you about their relationship with Tolkien. People always like to talk about their own history with Tolkien and their own relationship with Tolkien, um, and I love that. I respect that. I always really enjoy hearing people talk about that. And one of the things that I've heard, uh, and again, I hear this, uh, this happens spontaneously. Whenever I meet people, they start talking about, uh, they start talking about their relationship with Tolkien. And um, one of the things I've heard a lot is how important Tolkien has been in many people's lives in helping them get through difficult times. You know, it has been a very personal mythology for them. And I, again, I, and I have the utmost respect for that. Um, I, it is. I would even say it's one of the. Th it's it, to me. It's one of the evidences um, of the greatness of the Lord of the Rings. It's one of the reasons why why I say unflinchingly, um, you know, that Tolkien is one of the you know one of the greatest and most important English writers of you know ever. Basically, uh, you know, not just he wasn't just author of the century. I mean, I think he is one of the most important authors um, in English history. And I say that in large part because of the impact that I have seen his stories have uh, on people. And that's great stories do that. Like you can find 
you know, you can find this for other great stories. Like when you can connect with it in this kind of way, when you can learn from it in this kind mm-hmm. of way. Um, there are a lot of people that I know who have survived difficult times because of Tolkien. So I don't want to spit on this whole like, oh, they treat it like it's a sacred text. Depending on how you define sacred, you know, for a lot of people, it kind of is. And I respect yeah. that. Right. Yeah. Um, I absolutely respect that. Now, again, I um, that doesn't mean that if you have these strong feelings about Tolkien, that justifies you in yelling at other people. Right. Who are like being heretics from your own, uh, you know, orthodox, your personal no, orthodox but- interpretation of Tolkien. Right. That's where it begins to get yeah. misapplied. It means some your definition of the text. Yeah. 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 But but again, so this is uh, this is this is not just a digression, but this is coming back to the mythology thing. It's it's again, it's one of the ways in which um, I remember Tolkien set out to write mythology. Right. Um, and I certainly agree with what Robin was saying earlier that um, uh, writing a book like The Lord of the Rings is very different from writing like his early legendarium. Right. It's not the same thing as the Silmarillion. Um mm-hmm. And that's very true, but it's also not entirely different. There aren't, it's not like he abandoned that entire way of thinking and writing. Like there, it is a deliberately mythic story, um, which has a lot of that same, the same power of mythology. Um, But um, anyway, so that's, uh, that's when people have that reaction to Tolkien, Mm -hmm. when people, um, when Tolkien's writing has taken on this element of sacredness, right? Of, uh, of, of, of deeply personal significance to people in that way. Um, I don't think this is people like falsely projecting something like they're to some extent, they were kind of picking up what Tolkien was putting down. Like that's kind of, you know, one of the things he was getting, not that he like these exact messages were what he was conveying, but he wanted it to have this kind of power. And he wasn't necessarily creating a religion, but he was no. creating a very complex text based on based on a mythology. And I think so much of a mythology is not written in that understanding, stay with me here, is not uniform, right? Like there's the written text, but there's so much else that goes into creating mythology. And if somebody picks up yes. Lord of the Rings and it becomes their sacred text, in my head in terms of processing a text, that's no different than somebody picking up the Bible and it being a sacred text, because it's just an engagement with literature in which they find really deep meaning. So mm-hmm. I absolutely understand that. And there's a really famous quote from uh, Susan Cooper of, of my my love, uh, where she talks about you know the power of fantasy literature and its, its ability to have you learn to be moral and right or wrong or good or bad because you get to make all these decisions from the safety of your armchair alongside these heroes Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. absolutely you know if it's what helps you discover who you are and where you fall on the spectrum of good and evil you know what a powerful thing for a text to do and for all of us to think that that text can be understood one singular way nope yeah yeah um yeah yeah um yeah so um uh all this to say 
this is a very complicated issue and it's really important to to and and they're just a really strong issue you know and i think it's important to be sensitive to where everybody's coming from here you know mm. and to be really cautious against being dismissive where, wherever you are you know maybe you are defending you know defending tolkien's text and and uh uh and you feel that people are just dismissing you um and you know treating you like a close-minded zealot right or troll um maybe you're on the other side right maybe you're uh you know more open about those things but it really gives you the heebie-jeebies when people start talking about whiteness and Tolkien and um you know and and you are tempted to react against that um it's um it's it's it is good I I um myself have been quite glad of the opportunity to engage with this highly emotionally charged, but honestly, at the end of the day, not massively consequential <laughs> question, right? It's, in my mind, I feel like this entire debate, concern, discussion, right, uh, about the Amazon show is like a wonderful little um, practice floor, right? for how to, like we can we have a chance here right to learn and practice some techniques about how we treat one another and how we listen to one another yeah. and how we yeah. like the which we could then apply outside right, right? in other stake in this no exactly it's it's yeah. the, the stakes are so low like no matter how yeah. much you love Tolkien you have to admit that globally speaking right it's pretty low stakes, right? It doesn't actually matter compared to, you know, uh, like war in the Ukraine and whatever else. Like it's not right. that important compared to these other things. And yet there are a lot of, and honestly, this is how I've been, this is how I've been treating it myself. I'm like, okay, here's an opportunity for me to practice, right? To learn um, more about how, uh, how to try to create or preserve, um, you know, a, a discussion where we can where we can we can kind of talk about things with people we don't agree with and uh, um, so I think that's and a, to learn and grow like we just don't yeah. have that many forums where we get to do that like to go into a space and to be quite honest and say hey I don't know how I feel about this thing can we talk about it and have an actual conversation where you get to grow that's rare and treasured exactly and yeah exactly. I, if Amazon ends up, I shouldn't say Amazon, if this show ends up being something that we're not happy with, okay, move on. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. exactly. And um, uh, yeah, Edith says, I think I'm pretty reasonable, but if someone yells at me or calls me names or dismisses me, I'm going to dig in my heels out of sheer orneriness. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. Sure. And Edith, I've totally been there too. Um, I've totally been there too. And um uh, and again, this is why Edith, I found it uh, a very, uh, uh, a very useful and instructive experience 
to be yelled at on social media for a few weeks uh, because it gave me lots of practice there, right? <laughs> I, had, I had wonderful practice in overcoming my own temptations to, you know, yell back and, and dig in my heels in those ways and everything. And, and you're been, still smiling and you're still I, talking. It's, 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 it's been building character. <laughs> so I think that that's really good. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, all right. Uh, we should let folks go. It is. Uh, I know it's getting late for you over there because we, you, you, you guys had daylight savings now. Our clocks are normal now. See, so, yeah, so you're back PM. to five hours ahead instead of four. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yes, I will. Uh, I will. Definitely. But if I can escape Corona, I'll be in California next week. So. Ah, okay. Let's hope. So you'll be easier. you'll be so over in Robin's uh, uh, time zone and in the early afternoon. So there we go. Yeah. Be conflicting with nap time instead of bedtime. So that's good. Excellent. <laughs> nice change. My will be off. We'll be great. Exactly. Brilliant. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, everybody, for joining us. This has been a, a fun discussion. Look forward to uh, more discussion. I think next week we're gonna we're gonna dig uh, back into some uh, sort of uh, specific adaptation topics in preparation for uh, uh, as we still await more content uh, from uh, uh, from the studio there. Um, but. Uh, suggestions coming to us we've had a couple great ones come in that are are in the spreadsheet now so please do if, if you've got things you want us to think about it's it's really helpful to start our conversations we may not stay on that topic but you know <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely yeah um all right very good thanks everybody and i will uh we'll see you guys soon well, later this evening for uh, nature of middle earth if you want to join me then we're getting towards the end we're in the uh the latter part we're going to talk about the gladual and Celeborn content in the nature of middle earth uh, tonight so you can join me at 10 p.m for that thanks everybody and i will we'll talk to you guys soon bye now see yeah. you